that's where we spent our time from spring until late fall, and we took a lot of pride and joy in what we did there. And that was our main source of survival from year to year. Occasionally, when the money was available, we would go to the market and get other things that we needed as far as dairy products and bread. But that was scarce here and there. But my family, we were close-knit family. The most important thing that we shared was the love and the close-knitness that we have. While we had very little to come by, but what we had was the love that was unbreakable until I turned seven years old. At the age of seven, when I was due to enter the first grade, my mom and my dad received a devastating news that we knew was going to break us apart. Because of the government regulations, and they were harsh regulations, they have already been controlling where we live, where we work, and even where you go to church. But now we also found out that our parents cannot choose where they send their children. We were told that any child that has any kind of form of disability was not allowed to go to a regular public school. That devastated my parents and my family because they knew they were going to have to do something for their child. They knew that the education was very important, that without education, that she's not going to be able to make it far in life. And that summer, they set out on a mission to find a school and find a location for me to go to to get the education that I needed. And with as hard as it was, that fall they made the hardest decision, and that was to send their little girl to an orphanage a little over two hours away for schooling. I was seven years old, but I was the size of a five-year-old little girl. And that fall I was ripped from my family, from the only thing that I knew, and having to be forced to leave the only thing that mattered to me and move away to an orphanage for schooling. That first year at the orphanage was hard. I often felt alone and lonely and I often felt like nobody cared. And I often found myself asking the question, why? Why does it have to happen to so many of us and especially myself? Well, why do we have to leave the only thing that we know and have to be there for school, so far away from our family. Being at the orphanage was hard. My teachers and our caregivers, they did everything they could to make us feel loved and taken care of. Half of the children at the orphanage there were orphans. The other half was there for the same reason that I was. But needless to say, that second year at the orphanage, during one of those coldest days in December that little did I know that my life was going to begin to change. And it was one of the, during one of those cold December days, and I've talked about zero degrees cold. Sometimes it dipped below that. But that didn't stop us children enjoying the outdoors. If there was snow, no matter how cold it was outside, we'll be outside playing. But that particular day, instead of going outside and playing, and instead of going to our rooms after our lunchtime, what we did on a daily basis, our teacher told the seven of us in the class that after lunch today, instead of going to our rooms for nap times, what we did every day that we didn't, that we didn't like, and we did everything we can to get out of the nap time, well, 
that day was that day that we got to get out of it. So that was an excitement number one for um, the de that day, is to be able to get out of the nap town. And we haven't even found out what we're doing instead. But then our teacher further explained that when we get to our classrooms, in our class, there's gonna be boxes on our desk. And that each one of us children was gonna receive one of those gifts, one of those boxes. And that whatever it was in that box was for us to keep. It was for us to keep, up, to count as our own, that we didn't have to share, we didn't have to give it away. It was for us to keep. For me personally, and I'm sure for my friends in my class as well, that meant a lot to me. Because not only that I was receiving a gift, but that was one of the first gifts I were to receive in my lifetime. Because for birthdays and holidays, my family couldn't afford to get, get us presents and toys. We got candy and fruit most of the time, and occasionally get, we got shoes and clothes where we outgrew what we already have. To hear the words gift and that we're gonna get a gift was huge for me. And it was such an excitement because I knew there was something excited waiting for me. And then when we entered our classrooms, there we saw the boxes. And those boxes was wrapped in different kinds of Christmas paper. Some were shiny, some were filled with different characters and color. Before we even got to our boxes and opened them to see what was in those boxes. Looking at those boxes has excited us already. We have seen so much color in that one room at one time that most of it have seen in our lifetime at that point. Most of us, and including myself, we grew up what we call the black and white world. We haven't seen much color. Those crayons and color pencils and all those toys, you name it. We, I didn't grow up without that. So just you see those boxes and all that color and that paper that they were wrapped in was enough to put joy and a smile on my face. But then, and then before, uh, most of my friends, they didn't take no time to dive into those boxes to see what was in them. But for me, I spent at least 30 seconds just staring at that box. And I just couldn't believe that there was somebody out there that cared enough to pack that shoebox for me. We were told that those boxes were packed by people in America. We really didn't know where America was, but we knew there was somebody that loved us enough to pack those gifts for us. But then I started opening the box and we were starting to go through it. And I kid you not, by the end of the time that we spent looking at our gifts and looking at what we got in those shoeboxes, we still end up exchanging things, swapping things between us, and sharing if somebody got something and the other one didn't. And by that time that we left the classroom, none of us left with the same exact thing that we found in our boxes. None of us left with the same items. And that was fine. That's what we were used to and that's what we were accustomed to, was sharing our lives, everything that we had, everything from school supplies, from hygiene items. We had to share. 
So the fact that we got the shoeboxes and we got those items in our shoeboxes and we got to call it our own was a huge deal. It meant a lot to us. But then, as I got closer to the end of my shoebox, I ran across a little pamphlet. That little pamphlet was in English. So I didn't know English at that time. I asked my teacher to tell me what that booklet was about. She looked at it, and then she gave it back to me, and she proceeded to say, you know, I don't know what this booklet was put in your shoebox to begin with. It's not that really important. You can just get rid of it, do whatever you would like. So I thanked her, but then... When I walked back to my desk, I talked to myself, you know, if this little pamphlet was placed in my shoebox, there's got to be some importance to that little pamphlet. So I saved it. I wasn't going to get rid of it. I tucked it back into my box, and I was determined that one day I was going to figure out what that booklet was about. That particular cold day and that time of my life when I thought that the world was not fair, that everything around me was flashing around me, then that shoebox was placed in my arms. That shoebox had brought me hope and it brought me the love that was stripped away from me the day that I was forced to move to the orphanage. It was the happiest day of my life at that time. But then, after that faithful day, the following summer, I was given the opportunity to come to the United States for six weeks during the summer. That particular trip to the United States with a group of children who came here came for three main reasons. And that was to get out of the radiation that we were exposed to 24-7 because of the Chernobyl disaster. Secondly, is to experience the life outside of our home and our normal. And thirdly, is to get a medical attention that we either cannot afford or is not available to us back home, which was a huge huge opportunity for me alone. But most importantly, one of the things that mattered to me the most from those, um, that faithful trip to the United States was the Christian family that I was placed with to spend that six weeks with. That particular family is the same family that I still live with to this day. In fact, my American mom is here with me today. But her and her family was the family that was blessed enough to keep one of those little girls that came to the United States. That particular summer had allowed me not always to get those three things that I came here for, but also it allowed me to attend church, to learn what church was about and why it was so important to attend it. And it also allowed me to start learning about Jesus and who he was and why it was so important to have him in our hearts. Growing up, my family, very little talked about church. We never went to church, so I didn't know much about it. Not until I came to the United States, that is when I was first exposed to that. That particular opportunity to come to the United States came to me two more times after that summer. And in each time I came, each time I was able to learn more about Jesus, and in each time I was able to learn more of an English language. And let me tell you guys, English language was not the easiest thing to learn at all. After a long, many years, I got to where I am today with the language. But it was not easy. But each time I came, I learned the English language and I learned about Jesus. 
after the third time two nights later, I went back home, and I was determined I'm going to go back to my shoebox that I still have, and I was going to pull out that booklet, and I was going to study that booklet and figure out what it was. So with my little English that I acquired, and with the English Russian dictionary that was gifted to me, I began to study that little pamphlet. There were a couple of pictures in there, so I was looking at the pictures and trying to pull out the words that I knew and look up the other words that I didn't. After a while of studying that booklet, I realized that that little booklet that my teacher told me, you know, to get rid of, that it wasn't really important to do whatever I wish with it, was a salvation trap. It was the very story of Jesus and his life, his purpose for my life. And it was at that time that I realized, you know, that was a puzzle piece of my heart that was missing. And that was a puzzle piece that I needed in order to make it in this life. The following summer, after I came to that realization and figured out what that booklet was about, I was given another opportunity to come back to the United States. That particular summer, we attended First Baptist Church in Melbourne, North Carolina, just down the road from here. That is where, during vacation Bible school at that church, that is where I gave my life to Christ. That is where I asked him to be a part of my life and to be in my heart. Because I knew that without Jesus, that I wasn't going to be able to make it far in life. And I was for sure would not be standing here before you guys sharing my story of how that shoebox changed my life. That little but simple but powerful shoebox had come into my life and into my hands at the most vulnerable time of my life. At the time when I thought there was nothing out there, how this life was not fair, how they were ripping the children away from their family and putting them in the orphanages for schooling. But then that shoebox came into my life. And now that shoebox has planted that seed in my heart and in my life that later led me to accepting Jesus into my heart four years later. And that was possible by this simple shoebox and by the people like you guys in this room and everywhere around North Carolina and beyond. And as I'm standing here before you guys this morning, I want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for being a part of this amazing ministry because this shoebox has impacted children in more ways than one. Not only do they provide the material needs that these children need, but they also provide a way for them to learn about Jesus, like I have learned about myself. And that is the most important thing that we can pack in those shoe boxes, besides the wonderful items that we fill them with, and that's prayer and the seed that we use the boxes to plant in those children. Um, I am just one of the 206 million children that received can you imagine how many seeds we can plant for the years to come around the world? And before I close, I want to close with a verse that has been very dear to my heart for many years, and that is Philippians 4, 8, and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lowly, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace 
will be with you. And I want to leave you with just one thought. And that is, will you be willing to stand by me and pack those shoeboxes and be the reason that those children get the hope and the feel of love like I did so many years ago? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Natasha, we thank you very much for seeing OCC up close and in person. What a, what a blessing that is to see our what we gather every year for the Operation Christmas Child going into effect. A blessing to our hearts. Uh, some of you are probably wondering, why would they let him back up there? He had some ugly things to say about some individual back a while back. And that's true, I did. And they were all true what I said about him. But this is totally different because what makes it different is I like Jonathan <laughs> and Laura. <clears throat> and I figured what would be a better way to uh, honor a man than to uh, read a scripture that best describes him. So let me do that, if I could, please. And it comes from 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. <laughs> He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, distension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. You know, I think somebody moved my bookmark. Somebody unsensitive did that, I tell you. Uh, well, here's what I meant to read. I'm sorry. Okay. He's, and and uh, Peter is from 1 Peter, and he's instructing, he said, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising overthought, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief, chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's Jonathan, very much. He, he is so good. He shepherds us. If you, everybody could be in the choir for a while, they would realize what a blessing it is with you and Laura being there. Uh, not just their professionalism, because they are very good at what they do, but they also uh, shepherd us with love. Do I get an amen for that? Love and kindness and uh, and. A lot of times we will not have something right, a song, if you can believe that or not, but it won't be quite where it ought to be. And uh, he will kindly and gently work with us, but reminding us the whole time that it's not about a performance. It's about worship. So he shepherds us in worship in the choir. He always uh, comes with a uh, well, most always with a, with a, when we have prayer in the choir or either we have devotions that he brings his devotion book and brings that to us. Uh, and, and he knows that he is tilling the heart's soul with the songs that we sing and which if God doesn't, I mean, we can try to do it the best we can, but if God's not in it, it's really for nothing and, and it doesn't mean anything. Jonathan, Laura, thank y'all so much for making sure that God is in it. 
and he always makes us smile with some of his witty humor. You know, sometimes he does that too. And I wanted to just touch on just a couple things real quickly. In the last 25 years, if you're ever thinking about joining the choir, uh, and, and this has been a long time ago, some of them, but we go and sing at some of the senior homes, blessing. We've been to the Gaithers and the, the Cabarrus Arena. That was a real neat. We do Easter music. We do Fourth of July celebrations, Christmas musicals. And uh, he's even invited other churches that aren't quite as the size of ours that can't really perform some of the uh, musicals that they would like to. He's invited them in to us to sing with us. And so blessed us and them. And uh, my very favorite is when we went, you remember when we went to the state convention and sang the Experiencing God? I don't know how many of you guys were back here singing with that, but what a blessing that was. Uh, one of my highlights of my life. I just love it. Okay, and now we are working on the Christmas music, so you've got to make sure that you're there to hear that. And uh, just last but not least, Jonathan, our choir, on behalf of all of us, Oh, oh, one thing I want to say, he's even changed the lyrics because he didn't think it was quite following uh, the biblical principles. And he's even done that like with quartet sometimes. We'll do, do something, he'll say, I don't like that word. The way they say it, it's not quite what it ought to be. It's not what he feels like the Bible says. So he'll, you know, he'll change that. And I thank him for it. But we would like to say we love you, our choir, we appreciate you, and are so thankful and blessed of God to have you and Laura here with us. Thank you so very much. I want to invite uh, Jonathan and Laura if they would come to the podium at this time and as they do so Elizabeth uh, Kirk is going to be pinning on some uh, corsages and I'm thankful that she's doing that and not me I wouldn't want to stab them but uh, uh, also we want to welcome Laura's mother that's uh, with us today and then, of course, uh, Jonathan and Laura's children, Katie, uh, Carrie, and uh, Corey. And so we thank them for being here for this special day as well. But, you know, I promise you when we called Jonathan uh, 25 years ago, uh, he was more than 10 or 15 years old. <laughs> uh, he doesn't look uh, old enough to have been here 25 years, but... Back in uh, March of 98, when the church called me as the pastor, they were also looking for a minister of music, and they wanted the pastor to get in place first, and they asked me, did I know of anybody? Uh, Jonathan's dad, uh, Denny Turner, uh, was our, when I say our, uh, Connie and my uh, minister of music at our home church growing up. Oakhurst Baptist in Charlotte and about the time that we were going into the college ministry graduating from high school going into the college ministry Jonathan was probably entering into the middle school youth ministry and uh, so when they asked me if I knew anybody I knew uh, he had followed in his dad's footsteps uh, becoming a minister of music I called Denny 
and said, Denny, do you think that Jonathan would be interested uh, in speaking to us? Of course, he gave me his number. Jonathan was at a church down in Rome, Georgia. Uh, I called him. The rest is history. He and Laura began meeting with the committee. And of course, uh, he was presented. And uh, 25 years now, how time flies. And I tell you what, uh, the staff uh, loves Jonathan. He's such a kind and sweet spirit, helps us do so many things. We pick up the phone anytime we get in trouble with computers or sound system or video or anything like that. Uh, our word is we pick up the phone, Jonathan, you know, we need help. We call him. He's sort of our tech guy uh, on, on staff that helps us with, with so many things. Uh, there is so much more to his ministry here than you see on a Sunday morning. Uh, we cannot even begin to tell you the places that Jonathan is at work in the church behind the scenes. And of course, Laura as well. Laura has worked in the children's ministry, uh, youth ministry with the youth choir and the ladies ministry in addition uh, to sharing her talents with us on uh, Sunday morning uh, playing and so they make a tremendous team and we're very fortunate to have uh, both of them uh, with us uh, serving us and so it's it is truly an honor for me to be able to stand here and on behalf of the personnel committee uh, I want to present Jonathan and Laura both with just a little token of our appreciation. The staff will be taking them out to lunch immediately following the morning service. And then of course, we wanna invite you back here at five o'clock tonight uh, in the core, uh, just to fellowship with them a bit and uh, express your appreciation to them. If you wanna bring cards and gifts at that time, that would be very appropriate, but that'll be tonight in the core at five. But again, on, on behalf of the staff, the church, all the leadership of the church, we just want to thank them so much for their 25 years of selfless service. And so give them a hand at this time, if you would, please. Jonathan hates being put on the spot. Uh, I'm surprised he's not, not turning red. But uh, something else about Jonathan that you may not realize. In addition to church ministry, if Jonathan could do his favorite thing in life, there would actually be two things. He would want to work at Michael's. Seriously, he's creative. And he would want to work at Disney. Uh, in fact, Jonathan and Laura have even left their kids at home before to go down to Disney, the two of them. And that's not a joke. It, that's true, isn't it? He's left y'all behind to, to, to go to Disney. Loves Disney World, would love to work behind the scenes at Disney World and sound and lighting and things of that nature and loves Michael. In fact, the guys on staff, we tease him from time to time. You know, we'll get together to go play golf and joke that we're going to give him an afternoon at Michael's to, you know, go shopping or something. But very creative and uh, th that's just his heartbeat and he's very good at it. I think back 
through the years of vacation Bible school, some of the amazing sets that he has done, creative sets for vacation Bible school. And you've seen many of those, just incredibly talented. So uh, anyway, we just want to let Jonathan know today that he and his family are very special to us. And we love them, and we pray for many, many more years of serving the Lord together. Amen? Amen. Jonathan?
you stand? We'll give you an opportunity to sing. This is one of my favorite of the newer hymns. It's based on a hymn uh, from the 1700s, but they've changed the words around a little bit. But I find myself singing this song a lot through the week, and hopefully it'll mean something to you today. Come ye sins, poor and needy, come ye wounded, weak and warm. There's a harbor for the broken, where the hopeless are Come ye lost, afraid, forgotten, let your wandering souls find rest. At your heart's door, he is knocking, for you his precious blood was shed. He is able, he is able, Christ is able still to save.
Thank you, choir. Thank you so much. And Natasha, thank you for being here today. I tell you what, if her story doesn't motivate you to uh, pack a shoebox, I don't know what will. So uh, you pick up one of those if you've not done so already and bring it back for the, on the 12th and we'll have a dedication of those. I want to invite you to find the book of Romans, please. Romans chapter 1. And I've got good news and bad news for you. The good news is I'm going to abbreviate a lot of my message this morning, okay? I'm probably only going to cover about a third of it. Uh, you pray for me as I make some cuts up here. Uh, bad news is we're, we're still going uh, to go through these three chapters as best we can. So you, you hang on and we're going to go fast and cover some of these things. And there's a reason why that will become apparent uh, right after I get started today. So would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? Romans chapter 1, I'll begin reading in verse 14, read down through verse 17, and then in the context of the message, we'll look at a few verses in chapter 2 and a few verses in chapter 3. The title of today's message, Rescued. Look at what Paul says there in verse 14. He says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You may be seated. Many of you will recall with me how back in 2010, there was a group of 33 miners in the country of Chile they were almost a half a mile underground in a copper mine when various shafts and tunnels going into that mine collapsed. And those 33 miners were stranded for 68 days. Can you imagine that? 33 miners a half mile underground stranded for more than two months in a little room down there that they came to refer to as the refuge. 33 men underground. NASA got involved, you'll recall that. NASA advised the men about medicine and about nutrition and how to manage the psychological effects that they would be experiencing. Finally, one day, rescuers were able to pull these miners up one by one to the surface. All 33 were saved. But even today, they face the effects of PTSD. Now this morning, I want us to think of a far more important rescue operation. You see, 506 years ago, this coming Tuesday, 
506 years ago, Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the door of the church of Wittenberg, Germany, kicking off what is known as the Protestant Reformation. And folks, it would not be an exaggeration to indicate that what was at stake was the gospel. And rescuing the gospel from what the church at the time had turned it into. The church of the Middle Ages, sometimes referred to as the Dark Ages, was shrouded in spiritual darkness. The scripture was inaccessible to the common people. Because it was only available in Latin, a dead language. And so people would go to church. They had no copies of the Bible on their own. They would go to church and they would hear a service being done in Latin. And they wouldn't have a clue what was going on. And so consequently they just had to rely on whatever popes and priests told them. And the people were told that heaven could be gained through buying indulgences and praying to saints. Bishop positions over entire regions were available for sale to the priest who was the highest bidder. Immorality was rampant among the clergy. Some of the bishops even encouraged priests to have a concubine, which was forbidden by church law, but the bishops told the priest if they would simply pay an annual tax for having a concubine, the bishops would look the other way. Luther claimed that there were cardinals in the church who were considered as living saints because their extracurricular activity was confined to being with adults, not minors. And it's said that some of the convents in and around Rome were little more than brothels. In the fall of 1515, Luther began lecturing on the book of Romans and he ran into trouble almost immediately as he was reading and studying Romans chapter 1 and what really got his attention was verse 17. You see, he had the medieval concept of an angry God who was simply out to punish the sinner. And in fact, in his previous years in the monastery, he would often freeze himself almost to death. He would enter into prolonged periods of fasting and all sorts of other things in an attempt to appease God and win his favor. He got so tired of trying to appease God that he got to a point in his life that he said he he got to the point that he literally despised and hated God. As he read Romans chapter 1 verse 17, all he could think about was the righteousness of God and how he could never measure up. But the more and more he studied this passage, he came to the realization that that Paul was not speaking uh, about the person of God when he used the phrase the righteousness of God. Rather, Paul was talking about the imputed righteousness of God that God confers upon the sinner when we place our faith in Jesus. 
And Luther said it was like the gates of paradise were suddenly opened to him. And he finally understood what the Bible had been teaching. Whereby a sinner is born again and all of his sins, past, present, and future are forgiven. This is what is referred to as Luther's tower experience. That moment in his life when he said he was born again. Luther saw quickly how the Roman church was so completely wrong and even corrupt. Something else that bothered Luther, what really bothered him, was the sale of indulgences. On February 24, 1517, from the pulpit of his church in Wittenberg, Luther condemned indulgences because he charged they encouraged sinning and furthermore kept the people from knowing God. You see, according to the church... Christ and Mary and many of the saints lived such holy lives that there was a savings account in heaven. A treasury of merits stored up in heaven for the rest of us. And when you died because you'd sinned in your life, you would go to a place called purgatory and you would have to suffer in purgatory until your sins had been completely paid for. I hope you can understand how unbiblical that is because Jesus from the cross said it is finished. He paid completely for our sins and we don't need to nor could we ever add anything to what Christ has done. But the church said through purchasing an indulgence or viewing relics, they claimed they had such things as a twig off the burning bush that Moses encountered. Viewing such relics that they said they had or purchasing indulgence, you could buy loved ones out of purgatory so they could hurry up and get on to heaven. I mean, don't you want to get your poor mother, your mother who gave you birth and nursed you and raised you, and and now she's died and, and she's suffering for her sins in purgatory? Don't you want to buy indulgences and get your poor mother out of purgatory so she can hurry up and get on in the presence of Jesus? That's what they were saying. Through purchasing indulgences, you can spare her up to 1,902,202 years and 270 days in purgatory. And so what, what happened? The average person had no idea what the Bible actually taught about salvation. And finally, all this was too much for Luther to take. Now that he had had that tower experience and the veil had been lifted from his eyes and he had come to faith in Jesus Christ and understood what the Bible was saying about being saved and being made right with God, how could he remain silent any longer? And so he posted that document on the door of the church to invite discussion and debate. At that point, he wasn't trying to leave the church. He wanted to reform the church. And so again, today I want you to understand the immense 
debt that you and I owe to the reformers. Had the Protestant Reformation not occurred, could you imagine coming to church and still trying to do some of the things that they were being told they had to do to be made right with God? We owe a tremendous debt to them. And again, it's this passage out of Romans 1 and then especially one also out of chapter 3 that really cut to the quick in Luther's heart and helped him to see what God is saying to us. Just by way of summary, I just want to mention a few things. First of all, the good news of the gospel and and its power. That's what we see in Romans 1, 14 to 17. The good news of the gospel and its power. Notice in verse 14, he views his work of getting the gospel out as an obligation or a debt. Folks, what do we owe the world? Think about debts a minute. The country is over $33.6 trillion in debt. What's your family's debt? But what is the real debt that we in the church owe the world? You see, we have a greater debt. Paul saw this debt that we have is telling others about Jesus. In verse 15, he talked about an eagerness to do this. He wanted to go to Rome and preach Jesus. Why? Rome was the capital of the Roman Empire at this time. Virtually the the capital of the world, basically. He was anxious to go to Rome. Why? Because of verse 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Folks, the gospel is good news because it points out the fact that God sent his son to die in your place that you might be forgiven of your sins, that you might be reconciled to a holy God. And he rose again the first fruits of those who were raised. First fruits being the promise of more to come. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, those who are in Christ will be raised likewise. And it is a free gift. Eternal life is a free gift to all of those who come to God through Jesus Christ. The gospel is good news. Because without God's intervention, no one would be saved. Absolutely no one. Secondly, I want you to see man's guilt. Man's guilt, beginning there in verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God's shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became foolish in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were dark, and claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. 
And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Paul is wanting us to see that that the human race has offended a holy God. And in chapter 1, he's going to deal first of all with the pagan man. And he says the wrath of God is revealed. Now the wrath of God is not like some temper tantrum that you and I would have. God's wrath is holy and just and righteous. And the word that he uses here is not fumos, like a sudden outburst of anger, but rather orge, which means to grow ripe for something. And so that through the ages, God's wrath has slowly been building. Slowly been building against the human race. And he uses the present tense here, not the future. God's wrath is even now being poured out on an unbelieving world. It's revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, he says. Those who suppress the truth, you can't change the truth. Truth is truth, but some people try to push it under the carpet. Why? Paul says, because that which is known about God is evident to them. God's made it plain. God's made it plain to the conscience human conscience, and also through creation. As Psalm 19 says, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. And what's being told us? God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature. All of this is being seen in creation. Every day and every night, it's like creation is preaching a sermon to us That God is there. We see his nature and his power. And this leads to a verdict. And the verdict is men are without excuse. Without excuse. Even though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God. So what's God do? Paul says here three different times God gave them over. Because God made his truth known and people wanted to suppress it, push it out of the way. What's God do? God essentially greases the sliding board. He gives you over to go your own way. It's a horrible thing to have happen when God gives you over. As Augustine said, the punishment for sin is sin. You say, well, God, would God do something like that? Psalm 81, the psalmist said, but God's speaking. But my people did not listen to my voice, and Israel did not obey me, so they, I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. What did he give people over to? Rampant lust, degrading passions. Society calls same-sex relationships alternative lifestyles. Romans 1 here, God's word calls them degrading passions. 
What else did God give people over to? Depraved minds. When we turn from the light, we inevitably turn into the darkness. Then he goes on to say being filled. And he mentions 21 vices here. And he ends the list at the end of chapter 2 by saying not only do people do these things, but they give hearty approval to others who, who would do them with them. You see, misery loves company as the old saying goes. So what's Paul say? They don't know God and they're under the wrath of God. That's not my verdict. It's not your verdict. It's the verdict of the word of God. And I want you to understand the implication of what he's saying here for society. And I want to mention this because you will commonly hear people say, I can't tell you the number of times I've, I've heard people say, Pastor, if America keeps going the way it's going, God will have to judge us. If that's how you feel, you miss the point entirely of what Paul is saying here. You miss the point entirely. Because Paul is saying here, when you see the things happening in society that are happening now, when you see these things happening, that's the evidence that God is already judging that society. God is already pouring out his wrath on that society yes judgment is future we'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day and you think of how fearful that's going to be for some as they're there at that great white throne judgment John speaks of in Revelation 20 uh, chapter 20 but Paul is saying here when you and I see the things going on in society that are going on right now it's a testimony that people have pushed aside God's truth they don't want anything to do with it God's given people over in his wrath to go their own direction and that is evidence in and of itself that people are already and society is already under the judgment of God it's present it's not just future the things we see happening, the things we read about in the news, the things we, we click on on a, on, a, on a homepage of a news outlet, the things we see, all these things we read about going on in society is evidence that God has already let people go and turned them over in his wrath. It's judgment on society. And then in chapter 2, in the first five verses, I won't take time to read it now, but then he turns to addressing the religious person. He was probably primarily addressing the Jew, but it would be like the religious person or the Jew who would be sitting back saying, Paul, you tell those Gentiles, yes, sick them, go get them. Paul says, do you think you are going to be any better off? You might be religious, but you're trying to establish a righteousness of your own. You know, sort of that idea, I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with girls who do. Man, I must be a pretty good person. And you have all this religious code and all these things you do and don't do. But you're trying to establish your own righteousness instead of God's righteousness in Christ. And while you're trying to establish your own righteousness, maybe behind the scenes you're doing some of the same things the people in chapter 1 that he was discussing are doing. And Paul says, you're just as guilty. 
You're just as lost and just as guilty if that's where you are in your life. And he comes down to chapter 3. And in chapter 3, he gives God's prescription because he's just said in chapter 3, verses 9 and following, what what then can we say to all these things that, that the whole human race, the pagan Gentiles, the religious person without Christ, all in the same boat, guilty, condemned, lost. But man, I love what he says here beginning in verse 21 of chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus you see what he says there in verse 21 but now apart from the law the righteousness of God has been manifested a righteousness that the law and the prophets testified of In verse 22 he says it's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Read that again. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Folks that's it right there. That's what the Bible is all about. That's what salvation is all about. People today still get hung up on human works. Hey, I'm, I'm pretty good. I've lived a decent life. You know, if so-and-so makes it, surely I'll make it. People just don't get it. God doesn't save on that basis. Paul says Jesus Christ is the propitiation That word was used to refer to the taking away of wrath. Remember, we were under wrath. Jesus Christ is the one that God's wrath fell upon at the cross. That's why Jesus cried out in that horrible moment, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God's justice had to be satisfied. Christ took all of the wrath of God upon himself. Christ's death on the cross for sin perfectly satisfied God's righteousness. He is our propitiatory sacrifice. In verse 25 he says God passed over sins previously committed each year. Each year he did this on the day of atonement. When that lamb would be sacrificed until finally Christ once and for all served as our propitiation and he took God's wrath away forever for those who were in him. And so through the lamb being sacrificed on the day of atonement it's like God was allowing them to live on credit for another year with the promise that one day the perfect sacrifice would be offered ending all other sacrifices forever. And that's what God did in Christ. And what's the outcome of this? He goes on to say in verse 27 there's no room for boasting. None of us can boast because we didn't do it. 
God in Christ did it. God has done what we could never do for ourselves. Folks, that's the gospel that was rescued in the Reformation. The question for you and me this morning, has God granted this life to you? Have you been born again? Not are you religious. You know, do you fall into chapter 2 somewhere where you're just still trying to be religious? I do this, I don't do that. Hey, I'm, I must be right with God. No. Have you been born again? Has the Holy Spirit gotten a hold of you and convicted of you, you of your sin and drawn you to faith in Jesus Christ? You placed your faith in Christ and Christ alone and He changed your life from the inside out? He, he awakened you to the things of God and made you a new creation in Christ. If that's never happened to you, guess what? You're lost. You're just as lost as the person out there on the street who doesn't even claim to know God, who may be doing all sorts of evil stuff. You're just as lost. Have you been born again? Have you come to Christ? Folks, because of what he's done for us in Christ, this is why we celebrate the gospel. The good news is that Christ died, was buried, was raised to life again. Salvation is of the Lord. And you know, we don't need to assume that everybody understands this. Who should you be under obligation to tell? This morning, are you grateful for God saving you? And are you living out that gratitude? Remember what the Bible says, you and I are to glorify God in our bodies. A life of gratitude to God. Because He's rescued us. He's made us new creations. We have a hope now that we didn't have before. We have eternal life now that we didn't have before. And so we're to live out this new life in gratitude and submission to God. Thank you, Lord, for rescuing us. Thank you, God. And I pray for that one here this morning right now who's still trying to make it on their own. God, take the veil from their eyes this morning and help them to see that the gospel is all about what you've done for us in Christ Salvation is of the Lord. It's not of us trying harder. And God, I pray that the one this morning just trying a little bit harder, that you'll help them to see the truth of the gospel today. And Lord, for believers who have embraced that truth and been changed by it, may we live it out in a lost world. And may we understand the debt that we have to do so and to tell others that they might hear. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please? I'll